Good morning. Uh, my name is Joe, and I'll be reading the text for this morning. Uh, you can feel free to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, or you can follow along on the Version app or simply on the screens in the front. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For we were those who, or for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, left, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. I always love it when he stumbles a little bit so I can give him a hard time. And uh, on top of that, he got the memo to wear an outfit very similar to mine. And so it really, really works out well. If you're listening to the podcast, why aren't you watching the video? It's for your entertainment. Anyway, uh, so glad that you had the opportunity to join us this morning. And we're excited to continue uh, in a new series called Rest Assured. Rest Assured this morning's uh, title is actually uh, Community. So rest assured in community. And uh, as I started thinking about different seasons of my life that I found myself in community or living in community, uh, I thought a lot of my collegiate years, specifically uh, undergraduate. I went to uh, University of Valley Forge just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, there are just countless absurd stories, as I'm sure you can all share if you've ever been in an environment where you lived with a, with a group of guys or a group of gals and in a collegiate environment or otherwise. It's just kind of sheer entertainment and absurd idiocy all the time. And uh, one, of, uh, one of the guys in our apartment had decided um, that he no longer wanted to have stress about trying to find uh, a parking lot, a uh, parking spot uh, in the evening. And so he decided he would just park in the street right in front of, uh, in front of our dorm, which was not allowed. And uh, he's like, you know what, I come back uh, late and I leave early and nobody's going to give me a hard time. The person that worked in the night for, uh, for kind of the college security uh, was a friend of his. And he's like, I kind of have an understanding. I can just park there. Like, well, he's not going to work every night. And he's like, most nights. And uh, so we told him, like, man, you really shouldn't park in the street like that. And he's like, yeah, I'm not worried about it. I'll move it tomorrow. Like, just park in one of the spots. I mean, it's not a matter of whether or not there were spots. It's just he was lazy because it was faster and more convenient to park literally at the end of the sidewalk in front of our building. And uh, he's like, I'll move it tomorrow. Like, you should really move it. And so we thought we had a legitimate uh, right to kind of give him a hard time or motivate him is because uh, we, were, we were expecting a nor'eastern. 
And to me, uh, from New York, I know that Nor'easter's like a game changer. It's not like maybe it'll come. Like sometimes lake effect, you're like, ah, eh, we'll see if wind, you know, blows or whatever. But a Nor'easter is gonna like it's gonna hit us. And so we're like, you should really move your car. He's like, I'll move it tomorrow. Like no, this is, like this is a pretty legitimate snowstorm. He's like, I'll move it tomorrow. And we're like, dude, if it's out there, you're gonna get snowed in. You're gonna get ticketed. It's gonna be a big deal. He's like, whatever. And so um, it starts snowing. And uh, as it starts snowing, it's coming down, like, legitimately. To give you a little bit of an idea, uh, it's 1996. I'm aging myself a little bit. It's 1996, and this is what is affectionately known as uh, the blizzard of 96, uh, or the, uh, as they were to call it, the 100-year storm. <laughs> and so it continues to snow and snow, and we're like, dude, move your vehicle. And he's like, I'll move it tomorrow. Like, nobody's going to be out there. It's a snowstorm. I'll move it tomorrow. Like, oh my goodness, what needs to happen? And so it continues to snow. And if you know anything about the Nor'easter that hit in January of 96, near the Philadelphia area specifically, it dumped in the airport. Uh, it was a little bit more snow where we were, in my opinion. Uh, 30.7 inches. 27 inches came down in 24 hours. It was incredible. They didn't know what to do with the snow because they don't have that type of infrastructure. And so we were literally snowed in for almost a week of school. It was absolutely incredible. And his car was completely stuck. Like, if you can imagine three feet of snow, it's just there. We're like, you are going to get in serious trouble for that. And he's like, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I'll just move it. When it starts to melt, I'll move it. Like, okay, in April, you can move your vehicle. You know, like, what are you going to do? Like, they're going to see it. You're going to get a ticket. And so he's like, I don't know, I got to do something. And so they start uh, contracting uh, plows to come and plow all the different areas. And so there's this whole thing going out. If you have uh, a vehicle in any undesignated spot, your vehicle will be towed. There's all these kind of consequences. And we are not responsible <laughs> due to the mass volume of snowfall. We are not responsible for a, um, a plow hitting your vehicle, if it's improperly parked. I was like, your car's gonna get hit by a plow. And so it was like this incredible uh, reality that he had that like, you know what? Tomorrow, not good enough. Like I'm gonna move it tomorrow until you can't, until there's nothing you can do about tomorrow. And so the question I wanna ask you as we move through the text this morning is why do we live as if tomorrow is a guarantee? Why is it that we live as if tomorrow is a guarantee? So I was like, eh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. I have quite a bit of, of text to kind of move through, and so I'm going to jump right in. I want to challenge you to consider for a moment the unique time that we live in. We live in a land of opportunity, for sure. People live longer than ever before. Uh, technology is making our lives more and more comfortable, more and more content and convenient. It seems by the minute something is coming out to make our lives a little bit more easy, according to everyone else. And uh, by the world's standards, even the poorest people in America are some of the wealthiest. It's kind of an incredible and unique time that we live in. And so I want to submit to you that comfort breeds complacency and the assumption of stability. If we're comfortable, it seems like things are okay. When we're comfortable, when we're content, when we're complacent, it's kind of like, you know what? I'll worry about that tomorrow. I'm going to take care of it tomorrow. Just functioning under the assumption that tomorrow is some type of guarantee. I also want to let you know that without comfort, there's a sense of urgency, right? 
when we're not comfortable, all of a sudden we're unsettled. There's something that needs to be done about this. There's some type of activity that all of a sudden we seem pushed into, or at the very least, we seem like we have to be active in trying to have a different perspective about our current reality because it's not comfortable. This idea of urgency. So I want to submit to you that maybe we've been lulled to sleep by comfort. That we at times settle for a lesser version of our one and only life as a result of the comfort we experience. It's like this idea that it's good enough. I'm not going to worry about that. I mean, don't get me wrong. We worry. (laughs) We stress out. We freak out about certain things on all different gamuts of, of life. But for the most part, there's an assumption that we have tomorrow to worry about the thing we can't quite get done today. This idea of comfort in the world we live in. It wasn't always that way, right? If you go to third world countries where people aren't guaranteed a tomorrow, where they see their family and their loved ones dying in some cases by the hour, there's a sense of urgency to their life. The reality that tomorrow is not guaranteed. How do we get to a place that we consider the reality that tomorrow is not guaranteed? How would you live differently if you knew today was your last day? Sounds a little morbid, right? But think about that for a moment. What would your afternoon look like differently if you knew today was your last? Isn't that weird? It's weird to think that all of a sudden we would really rearrange things. Like all of a sudden, the idea, if we allow our mind to go there, if we allow our mind to go there, we would suddenly not be like, uh, okay, so home, nap, football, nap, football, food, nap, football, sleep. <laughs> Today's my last. You know, like, no, like all of a sudden we reevaluate every aspect of our lives. But here's the deal. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And yet, we're lulled to sleep in the comfort of our lives. We function as if tomorrow is a guarantee. It would cause us to reprioritize our life. And here's the interesting fact as humans. When faced with death, we reprioritize, but not always in a healthy or good way. Right? Just because there's a sense of urgency doesn't mean like all of a sudden you reprioritize, say, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden you reprioritize things. No, like I've seen people that have experienced the bad news of months to live, of weeks to live. And the things that they put on the list of to-dos, you're like, oh my dear God. What? Like that's the way you want to spend your last hours in this world? Like, listen, man, you know, you only live once. So just because we're sense, we get a sense of our mortality doesn't mean that by default we make good choices. If you think about it for a second, sometimes even urgency will cause us to make rash and poor decisions. That in the moment of urgency, you just decide. You're overwhelmed by the moment. And so if you think about it for a second, on, on one side we have comfort causing us to go on autopilot as if tomorrow is a guarantee. And then on the other side, if we have a sense of urgency around tomorrow not being guaranteed, it causes us to potentially make poor decisions. It sounds like a lose-lose. You're doomed, and so am I. Thank you for coming to Centerway. No, I'm just kidding. Like, 
when, when, when we realize it's kind of this lose-lose situation, we have this tension, then so what is the thing we should be about? How do we resolve this conflict? And I want to tell you that like us, that's exactly where the original readers of Hebrews find themselves. And the author addresses this by pointing back to history. If you have been with us at all, you know that part of Hebrews' uh, author is is to allow us to have a grid work to properly read the Old Testament in context and to have a better understanding of how the Old Testament actually points to the supremacy of Christ. And so, the author now is pointing back in history. In fact, this, this uh, pericope or this section of scripture, the text that we're going to unpack this morning, is actually a negative example. So what that means is we can learn from what not to do. And that's exactly what this text is about. In verse uh, 7, I'll read. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then it kind of starts this quote, today, if you hear his voice. So therefore, Therefore, a lot of these sections of Scripture start with therefore. And so we've talked about if you've been on the journey with us at all. In fact, the, the verse uh, pericope section of thought prior is Scripture uh, verses 1 through 6. And that actually starts with therefore, which is pointing back to chapter 2. But right now, we, we start with therefore, and so it means that it's pointing back to the previous thought block, which is verses 1 through 6. Therefore. So based on verses 1 through 6, therefore... Last week, we learned that verses 1 through 6 is talking about having our confidence or our trust in Jesus. And so if we can have our confidence, our trust in him, what it is that he's done, his finished work, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, this is a kind of simple statement with a powerful and profound implications in our lives. There's two things really that we can pick up from kind of this simple phrase, the Holy Spirit says, The first is, it teaches us that God is the author of Scripture. That when Scripture is read, when Scripture is spoken, God is speaking. The Holy Spirit says, which means the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. That God is the author of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. So when Scripture is read, God speaks. The second thing that we can understand from that statement is that... uh, This written in Greek is actually in the present active tense. And so what that means is, right now, God is saying. Right now, God is saying. And and what's unique about that is that the author is about to quote something from the Old Testament. And so it would be very easy to say, the Lord said, but that's not what the author chooses. The, The author is saying, the Holy Spirit, God is saying, present active. He's saying it today. And tomorrow, he'll be saying it today. Not as in yesterday, but as in present active. You're like, wait, I'm confused. You said today, tomorrow, I don't know what. It means always now. Regardless of when you read it, always now. Always today. Even though we're quoting the Old Testament, always today. Like I said, We're learning from history, so let me explain what the original hearers would have known so that we can kind of understand the context of what it is that's being quoted here. Uh, Verses 7b through 11 are actually quoted from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And Psalm, uh, this particular Psalm was actually a Psalm that was sung by Hebrews, by the Jewish people. And so this song, this Psalm, which was a song, would have been familiar to them. It's a song that they would sing in order to learn 
a lesson from the rebellion of a previous generation. And then commit the conclusion of the song to hear God and to act on what he speaks. So this psalm would have resonated deeply with the original hearers. It would have been something that, that they'd have been like, wait, why are you quoting the rebellion song? <laughs> what does that have to do with us? So verses 7b, because it'll start with the end of the verse in quotes, on through verse 11, I'll read one more time. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Killer song. <laughs> like, like, when you consider them singing, it's like, ah, they will not enter my rest. Tears, tears. Like, so you're going to listen to God? Yes, mommy. You know. So this would have been familiar to them, and, and you might read that and be like, I, if you just kind of cherry pick that and you're not familiar with what rebellion they're talking about, what is the rebellion? What is the history here? The history that it's making reference to is that Moses led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. So the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt. And because of time and the, the ginormity of the story, I'm not going to do it justice. But Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it is not without miracle. Like just miracle after miracle where finally the Pharaoh says, just get out. And as the people of Israel are leaving and they're filing out a million people, filing out of a city, out of a country, they come up to the Nile River and all of a sudden the Pharaoh's like, you know what? We're going to go get them back because they're our entire workforce. And you know what? If they don't come along, they just kill whoever you want. I don't even care. And so they come after them. And in a moment of brilliance and incredibleness, the water splits. And the people of Israel walk through on dry ground. And as the people of Egypt follow them, the, the water collapses and buries this people. And modern uh, archaeology reveals that there are actual uh, people mysteriously buried in the middle of this body of water. It's, it's incredible. And so you can, you can look into the history that confirms the reality of this event. Now, they have an explanation as to why it happened that's obviously not Christ-centered, and that's fine. It's completely fine. I want to welcome you if you are on that side. I know there's people of all different walks of life and spirituality in the room. And so whether you're a skeptic or a committed Christ follower, I'm thankful that you're here and joining the journey. But the story doesn't kind of end there. If you are committed to believing that the word of God is truth and you navigate the Old Testament a little bit further, you'll see this group of people move through the wilderness, not aimlessly, but led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That literally God himself is directing this entire nation through the wilderness. There's incredible miracles that happen that include manna falling from heaven to provide them food, to quail that come and almost bury them in meat because they're little complainers. And uh, it even gets to a place where they're like, we're so stinking thirsty. And Moses strikes a rock and water comes out. Like it's just legit 
absurd miracle after miracle. The people of God are just experiencing incredible things. And they get right up to the edge of the land promised them. Right to the edge of the land that God tells them to go and inhabit. They've gone from slavery to this place. And as they get there, they say, you know what? Let's send scouts in to kind of figure out the land. Let's see what we have ahead of us. So they come back and give an amazing report. The land flows with milk and honey, and they have all these grapes and amazing things that they bring and say, look, we, we should go and take this land. The only thing is, it's a land occupied by ginormous warriors and fortified cities. I'm like, what? Come again? <laughs> and so this, this people that have experienced the miracles and the provision of God, literally firsthand, get right to the edge of the promise of God and say, you know what? I don't think we're going in. Get that for a second. God says, act. Take the land. I brought you to this place. I brought you out of slavery. I provided and provided and provided. Even when you were whiners and complainers and all of those things, I was patient and merciful. Now go and take the land I've provided you. Essentially, I've done everything I can do as God. Now you do the only thing you have to do. Act. Take the land. Fearing death, they grew discontent with God. Having experienced all the miracles, if you read the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, Exodus, Deuteronomy, you'll see that they actually desired what they articulate as the pleasures of Egypt. What? Isn't it amazing that when we get to a place of fear, that when we get to a place of, of true concern over self, we romanticize the pain of the past. Right? The pleasures of Egypt. You were slaves. The pleasures? Can you come again? Like, you guys died. You were born into slavery and you were dying in slavery. The pleasures of Egypt? What is wrong with you? Listen. They wanted to return to slavery. They're right on the edge of their promised land. They're right on the edge of the promise that God said that they would provide. They're right there. They're at the doorway. And they're like, you know what? Let's go back to slavery. It's craziness, right? I mean, it's like us experiencing the miracle of salvation and freedom from the slavery of sin. To see provision after provision of God move in and through our lives, only to be challenged by the word of God. And instead of boldly walking into the promise that God has available for us, we decide to return to the slavery of sin. To believe the lie over the truth. It's craziness, right? Glad there's none of us like that in the room. I'm free. I'm free. But you know, things are kind of hard. I think I want to go back into the slavery of sin. Listen, in our darkest moments, in our most difficult seasons, we look to the created for comfort. We look to the created for comfort, for a guarantee of tomorrow, for a guarantee of some sense of control over the 
the, the chaos of our life. If I can just get my handles on life, I'm sure that I can work it out. I mean, after all, I've got time, right? I'll get to what God's called me to do tomorrow. I'll take the God risk tomorrow, after the kids are grown up. Well, once the house is empty, once I've got the car I want, once retirement's set, because after all, Jesus did die on a cross so you could get retirement. You know, like all these things that, that we say, oh, but after this, then, I mean, I'm going to tell you what, God's going to be impressed with my obedience once everything I need to work out just kind of gets worked out. What? Sounds like rebellion. Sounds a lot like clean your room. Eh, tomorrow. No, 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 I'm telling you to do this tomorrow. Move your car, dude. It's going to snow tomorrow. Listen, I'm telling you this because I kind of care about you. I have nothing to gain. I don't drive your vehicle. I'm just telling you the snow is coming. I'll get around to it tomorrow. Craziness, right? If that's our human condition, are we doomed? (laughs) You see, because Christ follower or not, we're really used to some comfort. We really like it. If we've bought into the American dream at all, I mean, we almost deserve it, right? Comfort. I mean, we've worked hard. Our parents have worked hard. and I mean, my gosh, it's what this whole life is about, isn't it? Our comfort, comfort for our kids and the generations to come. I mean, my gosh, I'm a good parent. I'm a good son, I'm a good daughter, the list goes on. I want to tell you, the gospel is the truth that resets our heart and mind. Here's the problem. Sometimes in moments of urgency, we aren't thinking straight. Right? I mean, we're overwhelmed by the lie. The lie of comfort. The lie of of this plane that deems what actually matters in our lives. We allow this world to dictate the priorities of our life. All the while experiencing the mercies and the grace and the miracles of God only to fold our arms and say, I don't know, God, that looks kind of risky. We've seen God's hand and even his provision But sometimes we're just overwhelmed by the right now, by the today, by the right now, right here. Like, God, I just, I don't know if I can risk listening right now. And that's why, among other reasons, we need a community of truth tellers to speak the gospel to us. When we're incapable of processing the truth in the moments of difficulty, that a community of people would speak truth. What, what is that truth? What is the gospel? I mean, verse 11. Verse 11 says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Rest. Now, in context, according to uh, Psalms, when the author writes rest, it's referring to the promised land. Because as punishment, Those Israelites 
folding their arms and saying, we're not going to go in. Then spent the next season of their life wandering the wilderness until they all died off in the wilderness. And their children took the promised land. But in context today, the original Hebrews that read this are in the promised land. So if, you, if you're reading this and you're making the assumption that what the author's talking about is the rest of the promised land, that would make no sense to its original readers because they're like, we're already here. We did enter into the rest. The reason why it's profound to the reader and to ourselves is because the land of rest is pointing forward to the rest that's available in the new creation. The author is encouraging us to remain faithful so we can make it to the true land of rest. But there's more. It's not just about, hey guys, don't rebel. Center your heart around truth because that will get you a get out of hell free card. (laughs) It's way deeper than that. You see, because God still has wrath towards sin. The first part of that verse, as I swore my wrath, God's wrath towards sin needs some sense of fulfillment. There's an unpaid debt. Rest in the Greek here means this. It means safety, security, and salvation. Isn't that interesting? When we read rest, we think naps and calmness, tranquility. That's not what the rest in the Hebrew, in the Greek means here. It means literally safety, security, and salvation. That they shall not enter my security, my safety, and my salvation. This is establishing a theology around rest. You see, rest is not a place. Rest is a person. That Jesus is our safety, our security, and our salvation. In fact, the person and work of Jesus is what fulfills the wrath of God towards sin. It's not because of what it is that you have done. It's not because of your best efforts or you being a good person. It's because God has this wrath towards the unfinished work of the fact that there's a debt that needs to be paid. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and pays the penalty for you and for me so that we can experience the rest of the new creation, the the safety, the security, and the salvation of the promise that's to each and every one of us. So we stand at the doorway a promise of true rest. And we decide. You see, the warning in these verses should be sobering even to us today. There are consequences for those that presume on the grace of God and trivialize the gospel. To just assume that the gospel is for the purpose of you avoiding hell is to trivialize something far greater that's at work. It's to ignore the hand of God on your life for as far back as you can remember, and to act as if this one and only life of yours is for the purpose of establishing some form of physical comfort. How empty would that be? That's why people are searching and searching and searching, because it doesn't pay off. It's why there's millionaires and billionaires that are still searching, because you can never have enough. 
Because peace and rest and comfort don't come with what's available in front of you. Are you guilty of trivializing the gospel, of cheapening the grace of God? Are you standing at the doorway of a God risk, just folding your arms and saying, God, it's just, it just seems too risky. It seems too risky. Verse 12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, it's all starting to kind of come together like, oh, the rebellion, the rest, the person and work of Jesus. My unbelieving, evil heart is what keeps me from walking through the doorway of obedience. This unbelieving, evil means to turn away or forsake. And heart, in the original Greek, if you're not familiar with heart, it's not talking about the thing beating in your chest. It's talking about the inner self. It's talking about what would be defined as the id or the mind, the thing that makes you who you are specifically. So who you are internally, specifically, your heart, is it unbelieving and evil? Well, you might say, no, no. I'm a good person. <laughs> Except Jeremiah 17.9 has something unique to say about the heart. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are a mess. And you know it. I mean, you know you're a mess, right? I mean, unless you're really, really fooling yourself, you know the wickedness of your own thoughts, the depravity of your own heart. Your willingness to consider self over others. Your pursuit of comfort at all costs. We can blame others and point fingers, but at the end of the day, we lay our head on the pillow and we know our own wickedness, our own propensity towards sin, towards rebellion. So what can we do? What can we do? I mean, so far, it is just a lot of bad news, right? It's an example of what not to do, and yet we're kind of stuck right in the middle of it all. And verse 13 says, but, but, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by the lie of sin. Exhort one another. It's interesting that, that what the text is saying is that there's something to the mutual encouragement that sustains and strengthens our faith. This morning, you're only alone if you choose to be. Hear that for a second. Because one of the lies of sin, of hell, would be that you're alone. It's not the truth. You're only alone as, as you want to be. There's a, a community of people here that are leaning into the messiness of our lives, that are linking arms and saying, you're a hot mess, so am I. Let's figure this out together. As we pursue the truth of the gospel and allow it to transform every aspect of our lives. And so my friend's out there next to his car and he's just scratching his head with snow to his waist. And he's looking like, there's literally nothing I can do. Like, it is literally stuck 
in nearly three feet of snow. And so we are laughing hysterically while looking at him outside the window. And we're just like, dude, you deserve this so bad. (laughs) You were so lazy. And then it was funny. As we looked and uh, we saw his reaction, this guy that was kind of this carefree, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, whatever, put his hands in his, his head in his hands like this. And we're like, what is he doing? Like, wow, he's like really upset about this. And so we start to feel bad and a little bit of compassion. We're like, I don't know, you want to like go see if he needs some help or something? Like, dude, I don't want to go in the snow. And we're kind of looking at each other and like, I don't know. And so we talk amongst ourselves and we go down and he's standing there and he has like tears in his eyes. He's beside himself. He's like, if I get a ticket, if my car gets hit, my parents are taking my car. If my parents take my car, I lose my job. I don't know if I can even stay in school anymore. And he starts just talking about the reality of his own trivial perspective on tomorrow. And he's just starting to come unglued. And he's like, guys, I'm just, I'm sorry. I I don't know. I don't know if you can shovel. I don't even know how to shovel this. I don't know if we can like somehow get it down this road. I I don't even know. And so one of the guys with us, he was the, the goalie on our soccer team. He's about 6'5", just a huge dude. And he's like, let's just carry it. <laughs> We're like, come again? <laughs> let's just pick it up. Like, pick up his car? He's like, yeah. We're like, no, we can't pick up his car. He's like, I know you can't. Like, okay, whatever, dude. Like, all right, we can pick it up. He's like, no, no, if you guys can't do it, I'll go down to the girls' dorm and get a couple girls down here. Like, all right, simmer down, Tiger Lily. No reason to get all offensive. And so the eight of us get around this car and we just grab a hold of it wherever we can grab. And no lie, we just picked his car up and just started walking through three feet of snow with it. It was one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. We walked it into one of the parking lots and set it in a spot. It was incredible. We were like laughing hysterically. And I mean, we set it down a couple times. It wasn't like, hey, you know, like, and he rode a bicycle. You know, like, hey, guys. No, like, we set it down a couple times. We laughed at each other. We got into some snowball fights and all that. But like, we rallied around the mess, We extended grace. We could have stood there and been like, we told you so, man. Reap it. (laughs) You know, from the window. Hey, I'm not getting cold, but kiss your car goodbye. Daddy's coming. You know, like. But instead, we rallied around him. Why? Because we know what it's like to be lazy. We know what it's like to be like, eh, tomorrow. He didn't even have to apologize. Like, we just, we rallied around, and in the midst of the mess, We came together as a community and we laughed and we joked and he was so grateful and and we had a blast because there's something about doing life together. There's something attached to the reality that God knits us together in community, that we would exhort, that we would encourage one another. Community is critical in the journey of spiritual maturity. You cannot spiritually mature in isolation. That is absurd. It's not possible. Why? Because you need to extend grace when you don't think they deserve grace. Because you have experienced grace that you do not deserve. The only way you can live out the gospel is in the midst of a messy community where you can lean in and say, listen, let's exhort one another. Let's encourage one another now. 
today. Today, because you know what? Tomorrow, it's not guaranteed. We can rest assured in community. We can rest assured in a gospel community. So verse 14 says, for we, it's interesting. It changes, the text changes from you, you, you to we, community. For we have come to share in Jesus, in Christ, sorry. If indeed we hold our original confidence or our trust, as we learned last week, firm to the end. We do life together. Transition from you to we. This is a warning to examine ourselves. And I hope this morning some of what we've talked about has caused you to just examine yourself. Examine what it is that you live for, what you sacrifice for. As if tomorrow is a guarantee. Verse 15 says, as it is said, and it quotes it again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Quotes it again. Quotes Psalm 95, 7b through 8 again for emphasis, like just in case you missed it. Here's one more time. It's emphasis because we have the decision to respond or not. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you hear the voice of God, take action. Don't allow there to be a hardening of your heart. Then the, the text goes on with some rhetorical questions that kind of culminate into verse 18 and 19. And verse 18 and 19 says this. It says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. Disobedience flows from unbelief. Now, unbelief, you might think, just means like, I don't believe it. Like, the simplicity of the word. To believe or to not believe. But in the Greek, it means refusing to trust. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that unbelief is a refusal to trust. I'm not going to believe you because I don't trust you. So therefore... Do not obey that which God has called you to do. It's to simply say, I don't trust you, God. Which in turn means unbelief. Unbelief. That literally, when we turn a cold shoulder to the creator of the universe, when we cross arms and consider our comfort over his voice, that we are literally saying, God, I do not trust you. And therefore, I do not believe. And we are in rebellion. It's heavy. A refusal to trust. We do not listen and we do not trust. So to not trust or have confidence is to reveal our obedience or our disobedience. Hebrews reminds us that the gospel it not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Power. You're standing at the threshold of whatever it is that God has called you to walk in. 
And we need to speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, and we need to speak it to one another. So I'm not here to convince you to come to Centerway. I'm here to tell you that you need to immerse yourself in a gospel-centered community where people are willing to challenge you with the truth, that are lovingly willing to just say, I love you enough to tell you the truth about what you're wrestling with. We say every week that the text requires something from us. And as I said, I hope that you're considering the implications of your own life this morning. And I believe that God is whispering. But the question I want you to to leave with, the application that I want you to consider is this. When this week will I encourage someone in their faith? That's the thing I want to challenge you with this morning as you leave this place, as you go back to your worlds of, of comfort or discomfort or whatever that looks like, would you wrestle with the application of, of when? Not if. Not if, but when. When this week will I encourage someone in their faith? Now, at face value, the question may not make a lot of sense, but because of the journey you've been on this morning, I'm not talking about like, hey, you, believe in Jesus, buddy. I did it. (laughs) The way I'm going to encourage someone is to to hold my scripture journal in public. You're welcome. (laughs) It's amazing what we we kind of like lower the bar on (laughs) and be like, boom, you a Christian, I'm a Christian, yay. Like, no. I'm talking about exhorting people in their faith. We're talking about, the preaching and teaching team is talking about taking on the responsibility of what the author of Hebrews is challenging us to wrestle with and saying, you know what? This unbelief thing, this disobedience, it's real. And so therefore, maybe the person that you need to encourage about their faith is yourself. Maybe this morning your application is is for you to stop just kind of giving yourself a pep talk about this life you live. Maybe the idea of starting to speak the truth of the gospel to your own heart. Saying, listen, I need to to rearrange my, my thoughts about this relationship, about this situation, about the circumstances at work or whatever it might be. I need to center it on truth. And maybe it means going to a person who lives their life in a gospel-centered community and say, listen, will you help me see truth? Because I think I'm believing a lie. You know, we can encourage people far from God by living and speaking incarnationally, being the hands and feet of Jesus, being kind when it's counterintuitive, being gracious in the midst of tension, forgiving the unforgivable. We, we can take on the reality of exhorting people in their faith by living out ours. So I want to challenge you this morning. If you would, just bow your heads. You can leave your eyes open if you want, if you're the type of person that kind of disengages as you bow your head or close your eyes. But I want you to consider the implications and the application for this morning. When this week will I encourage someone in their faith? If today... It's you. I want, I want to challenge you. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you crossed the line of salvation? 
And you know if, if you have. I just want to provide space if that's you this morning and, and the person you need to exhort with the truth of the gospel is yourself because it's time to surrender. And it's as simple as just saying, God, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. You paid the penalty of wrath that I could not pay. Would you forgive me in my sins? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It could be that simple this morning. For others of us in this room, if you've crossed that line of salvation, maybe encouraging someone in their faith means to share your faith. Maybe it means a conversation. And I, I don't mean an, an awkward, clunky attempt to answer their every theological question. I'm, I'm talking about the idea of sharing parts of your story with someone. Allowing the pain of your life to resonate with the pain of theirs. So, you know, I used to, I used to be right where you are. But then, then I experienced something of hope. Something of peace. And I mean, if you want to talk about it, we can talk. But I just want to let you know you don't have to stay where you're at. It could be that simple this week. It could be that simple in your sphere of influence because you have been strategically placed. Don't minimize that. Maybe it means to speak the truth in love. To have a conversation you want to avoid with someone that's a Christ follower, but it's time that you exhort them in their faith, that you come alongside them. Maybe it means self-examination as to how incarnational you really are. Am I really an example of what it is to be transformed by the truth of the gospel? God, would you do a work in me? Would you reset my heart, my mind, the priorities of my life, the worries, the things that capture me? Let's focus on that as we, as we respond this morning to what it is that God's doing.